Looking at our world from a theological perspective, this is the Theology Central Podcast, making Theology Central. Good evening, everyone. It is Tuesday, December the 20th, 2022. It is 9.47 p.m. Central Time, and I'm coming to you live from the Theology Central studio located right here in Abilene, Texas. And it is time to open some email. Well, okay, not really. It's time to look at one email, not all my emails, because I don't think you want me to look at 93,340 emails currently in my inbox, okay? I don't think you want me to do that, all right? But we're going to look at one email that I received this evening at 7.49 p.m. Central Time, and it is entitled Law and Gospel Sermon. Now, immediately what I thought is, oh, someone discovered our series on understanding law and gospel, where we have now done... 43 plus hours, 43 plus hours of teaching on a proper understanding of law and gospel. So I thought someone possibly found one of our messages. They had a question, they had a comment, they had a criticism. And so I I immediately like, oh, 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 law and gospel. Somebody wants to talk about my series. So I opened it up and it not exactly wanting to talk about my series, but they definitely sent me something that would relate to our series on law and gospel. So let me say this right from the outset. Let me say this right from the outset. If you have not listened to our 43 plus hours, okay, 43 plus hours of teaching on law and gospel, I would challenge you to download the Church One app. That's Church, O-N-E, Church, O-N-E, do a search for Theology Central, choose us, that turns the app into our app, and pulls everything in using our RSS feed, and then then look for the series on understanding law and gospel and start listening. I believe it's one of the most important series we have ever done, and we have covered lots of very important theological issues related to the gospel, related to the law, related to the church, related to Christianity, to justification, sanctification, glorification, and so many other issues. So please listen to that. This episode that we're working on right now in regards to this email will be a part of that series, and so hopefully this will be beneficial. And for those who have been listening to the series Hopefully this will add to your study of law and gospel because you're going to hear a different perspective, I think. I don't know exactly what we're going to hear. Okay, let's be honest. I don't know exactly what we're going to hear because this is what happened. In the email, they sent me a link to a sermon and we know the rules, right? When I do sermon reviews, what's the number one rule? I don't listen to it in advance because I don't want when I review a sermon for it to come across as rehearsed, overly produced. I don't want it to sound like, oh, look, he went and found a bad sermon so that he can tear it apart. Now, when I review a sermon, I have no idea what's in it, so no one can accuse me of a specific agenda. Now, there are times where I know, okay, this is going to be bad. This is going to be bad because it's from someone who's known for some really bad theology. But I always try to be transparent with that. But I still don't listen to the sermon because I want to review it. I want to react to it in real time. I always want these reviews to be like we're sitting down together, listening to it together, and just hitting pause and talking about it. So hopefully that that that's a good thing. 
because I think it makes it more fun. It makes it more interesting. It's a very bad thing because uh, I never know what's getting ready to happen. And so I'm always like, I I love the feeling that it's exciting. But sometimes when I get done, I'm like, well, ladies and gentlemen, I just wasted an hour of my time. And I just wasted an hour of your time. And that's never any fun. But I think it's it's always fun to see where we're going to end up and what's going to happen. And hopefully I make it interesting, informative, challenging, maybe entertaining. Okay, I don't know if I ever make it entertaining, but I try. So I hope you're ready. So here's the email, all right? So understanding law and gospel. I can't go review all 43 hours of teaching. Let's just say, I'm going to read thesis number one. We, we put out, what, 25 theses on uh, understanding law and gospel. And I hope that you will, uh, uh, we've got the PDF of these thesis statements. And so I, I would I would hope that you would at least make, at least look at them and read them. But thesis number one on a proper understanding of law and gospel is this. This is very important. The doctrinal contents of the entire Bible, the doctrinal contents of the entire scripture, both the Old and New Testament, that's redundant because I already said the entire scripture, but the the, the doctrinal contents of the entire Bible, and this includes both Old and New Testament, are made up of two doctrines. And these doctrines differ fundamentally from each other. Law and gospel. So let's make it very clear. Law and gospel, they differ from each other fundamentally. They're fundamentally different. And we must keep them distinct. We must keep them separate because they are separate. They are different. And we have to understand the proper distinction between the two. We're not to mix. We're not to merge because what always happens if they're mixed and they're merged, the gospel gets destroyed because we are by nature law-minded people. We are by nature. And so, so many times, even within Christianity, the law really trumps the gospel, even though we claim that's not what we're doing, it happens over and over and over. So we got to know these are, the Bible is made up of two fundamental fundamental doctrines, law and gospel, and they are fundamentally different from each other. That is thesis number one. And I think we have what, 25, I think it's 25 thesis that we came up with. It may have been 35. I don't even remember anymore. There's a lot. And when I say we came up with them, we took them from a book. We we rewrote some of them, but we we took them from a book called God's No and God's Yes, the proper distinction between law and gospel. But we rewrote some of the thesis to, um, that I think clarified them, in some cases, utterly changed and we, we completely left out some of the things that they included because we disagreed. But you can go listen to the series. If you're using the Church One app, find the message titled Law and Gospel PDF, and you can open up the PDF on the Church One app. And uh, guess what? You can look at all of the thesis and see what we've done so far. But now here is the email that I received at 7.49 p.m. this evening. The subject line, Law and Gospel Sermon... Romans 5, 19 through chapter 6, verse 7. Now, not only have we done 40 plus hours in, uh, on the subject of law and gospel, we have spent almost four years in the, in the book of Romans. So we've got teaching on that section of scripture as well. So we have clearly br- addressed the same passage. And if we need to, we will go back and work on it. But here is what was sent to me. The pastor preaching 
this, so the pastor preaching this sermon that they have a link to, said that the law and gospel distinction is solved by regeneration, which coheres with my view. Now, I don't know what they mean by the distinction is solved. Does the distinction need to be solved? Does distinction need to be resolved? Or do all of our problems come that I think maybe what I have stated, maybe this is what they're thinking, is I've stated that this apparent contradiction, when you look at law and gospel, they appear to contradict one another. They appear to be completely different and that people have tried all these different ways to solve the apparent contradiction. But I think in most attempts to try to solve them, they end up messing them up. So maybe a proper distinction of law and gospel is not necessarily to um, solve the distinction I think the, the 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 solution is to acknowledge the distinction, but but I, I don't know. We'll see what the sermon is going to say. But according to this person, this preacher says that the, the, the distinction between law and gospel is solved by regeneration. Oh boy, I have a feeling where this is going. Oh, I have a feeling where this is going. And 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 <laughs> I, I, I don't want to say. I'm not I'm not gonna guess. I'm not gonna guess. I am nervous, but we will see. And so then they have a link to the sermon. And of course, the one who emailed me says that this, this is their view. This is the, they agree with the view presented in this sermon. Now, that's always dangerous, but uh, I do admire this emailer because if they email me something and I disagree with it, they don't seem to take it to uh, get offended by that. They seem to be okay with it and they just keep emailing me, which I do appreciate. Because I mean, the thing is, if you're going to email me a sermon and I'm going to review it, I mean, I've got to be honest with what I feel is either right or wrong. So I appreciate that they don't seem to get offended. I obviously haven't listened to the sermon in advance. So it's not like I listened to it and then I'm like, man, I'm going to show this emailer how bad the sermon is. I have no idea. I haven't listened to it yet. So I don't know. I, I may say this was the greatest sermon ever preached. I may say, wow, I've never considered this position. I was wrong. Or I may say, this is the worst thing I've ever heard in my life. Or I may just be completely indifferent and be like, I don't know. I don't know. We're, we're going to see. Now, the only thing that concern, uh, well, the first thing that concerned me is that supposedly regeneration fixes this problem. Mm, I, I don't know. I don't know. But we will see. But the second thing that bothered me or concerned me is when I clicked on the sermon, here's the title of the sermon. Answering antinomianism. Answering antinomianism. Now, I get very nervous about this because I am, I'm kind of grown tired of hearing about this boogeyman called antinomianism. It's the boogeyman, right? And, and sometimes it's almost embarrassing because someone will throw out the accusation, antinomianism. And it's almost like, oh, you learned a new theology word. Wow. Congratulations. Congratulations. Because so far, every time I've heard antinomianism mentioned, in fact, we, were ju we just reviewed a podcast episode where they were like, antinomianism, it's infiltrating the church. Antinomianism is the threat that the, the church is facing. Yet they did not name one sermon. They didn't name a pastor. They didn't name a church. They didn't name anything. Now, I understand there may be some antinomianism-like thoughts, but I just don't see antinomianism as the, as the greatest problem in the church. Because here's what I hear every time I listen to a sermon. I don't hear antinomianism. I listen to random sermons everywhere. I listen to Christian radio. I don't hear antinomianism. You know what I hear over and over and over? 
do this, 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 do this. How to be a better this, how to be a better that. 10 steps to this, five steps to this, four steps to this, three three points on this. But they are all, almost every sermon gives you a list of things to do or what you should be doing. So I don't I don't see how that's antinomianism. It's it's constant law 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 law. So I, I I'm I'm a little concerned that this is supposedly answering the antinomians. Maybe the antinomians are running around all over the place. But man, if they do, they don't have much of a platform. They have a maybe they have some YouTube videos. Uh, but I don't I just don't see them everywhere. I mean what I hear. Is, uh, even in churches that you would say are liberal, 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 and they don't think anything's a sin, they'll still give you five things you need to do. They'll still give you 10 things you need to do. It's always law, 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 law. Do this, do this, do this, try harder, try harder, do this, try harder, do this, do this, do this. So I don't know. I don't know. Some other people who listen to the podcast have agreed with me that they think antinomianism is kind of like the the problem that doesn't really exist. I, I I don't know. Maybe it's more prominent than I give it credit for. But the fact that that supposedly regeneration fixes the problem and they're supposedly answering antinomianism of all the things I need to answer when it comes to theological issues in the church, I think I'm going to now worry about antinomianism. Now I've been accused of being antinomian, right? Because I, this is weird. I've been accused of being antinomian, right? But I've also been accused that I don't preach. Like I'm like I want by, sometimes by the same people. You don't preach the gospel, which means to seem to say that I'm telling people to do do. Like I, I'm too law minded, and then at the in the same conversation, be told you're also an antinomian. <laughs> I don't, I don't know how I can be. I'm not gospel minded enough. But I'm antinomian. I, I don't know. It, it sometimes you just like. Do you even know what you're accusing me of? I, I don't know. And a lot of times, people who throw out the word antinomian, you, if you just stop and go, what books have you read on antinomian written by an antinomian? How, how many how many books have you read? What sermons have you listened to actually preached by an antinomian? And, and it's, it's like in many cases, the best they know is the word and a simple definition. And so I, sometimes it's just maddening. So I don't know what's getting ready to happen here, but those are some of my initial concerns. But I'm excited. There's no way we're going to get this reviewed tonight. This is a 50-minute sermon. So this is just an introduction. And so that's why I'm spending a little extra time here getting some of these introductory thoughts out of the way. But now pour you something to drink. Grab you something to eat. Sit back. Are you ready to dive in? Answering antinomianism. And I think they throw in in the title again. So I guess they've been dealing with antinomianism a lot at this particular church. Um, we're going di- to dive in. And I don't know. Maybe we're going to end up agreeing. Maybe we're going to disagree. Law and gospel, according to the emailer, this sermon resolves the problem or solves the, the problem. Hang on. Let me, not, let me not put words in their mouth. That would be incorrect for me to do so. Let me... Let me go to the email. That the distinction between law and gospel is solved. I don't think we ever solve it. I think we maintain the distinction. I think we maintain the distinction and we understand the distinction. And we and I, I think maintaining it is how we solve it. But we'll see. We'll see. And the, regeneration is the answer. All right. That's, oh, I'm a little bit concerned. All right. Here 
we go. Let's pray together for God's blessing on our time in his holy word, please. Heavenly Father, we thank you that we can go directly to the source, the only source that the church has of your voice, your pure voice speaking to us. And we pray you would help us understand it, to lay its truths up in our heart and practice them in our lives. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Please turn your Bibles. All right. I'm going to, uh, I do appreciate that his sermon, his uh, prayer was basically to the point and he said it and then he was done. I do appreciate that. Um, I do feel sometimes that when pastors pray, uh, that they basically start preaching their sermon. I do, and I do ask this question frequently, and I know it causes lots of, of people get very bothered by, by this and get very irritated with me. But I, I just, I wonder what we actually mean when we say, Lord, help me. I know, and I've, and look, I've fallen into the trap and I say it sometimes in my prayers as well, because on one hand, I, I'm not going to say it's necessarily wrong to pray for. I just, I just, I just think it leads to serious theological implications. All right. And just, and just hear me out here. Don't, don't, don't lose your mind. Don't, don't exit off. Don't, don't go ahead and give me a thumbs down. Just hear me out. I know, I know it's common for Christians to teach that the Holy Spirit leads us into all truth. My only problem with that is, first of all, if the Holy Spirit is leading all believers, if the, if the Holy Spirit's leading all believers into all truth, then there wouldn't be thousands and thousands of denominations, 50 million different commentaries. Nobody agrees on the interpretation of any particular verse. We can't even agree on baptism, Lord's Supper, church structure, and we can't even agree on salvation. We don't agree on anything. So if the Holy Spirit's leading us into all truth, who has the truth? Secondly, if we believe the Holy Spirit's leading us into all truth, the problem then it becomes, well, then if I have an interpretation and I believe the Holy Spirit leads me into all truth, well, then my interpretation would have to be infallible because it, I was led to it by God himself. Therefore, if you disagree with me, you have to be wrong because the Holy Spirit led me into all truth. And if you're wrong, that means the Holy Spirit's not leading you into all truth. Therefore, either one, you're not saved or for some weird reason, the Holy Spirit doesn't want you to have that truth. So then you couldn't blame the person, you'd have to blame God. It leads to all kinds of theological issues. So I always find it, I, like, what do we mean when we say, God, help us understand this? So whatever understanding he's about to preach, does it come from God? Because what if I disagree with his interpretation? And I pray that God help me understand. Did God help me or did God help him? He's going to think God helped him. I'm going to think God helped me. And then we're both going to say that it was God who led us to that information, which then makes our interpretation basically infallible. There are so many theological problems with this way of thinking. And, and, and when you raise your hand and ask the question, people get very upset. But I'm like, come on, you're, we make the claim. We have to back it up some way. So, but it was a quick, short prayer. Let's see where he's going to go. So Romans chapter 5 verse 19 through chapter 6 verse 7 Romans 5:19 through chapter 6 verse 7 Romans 5:19 through 6 verse 7 
This is God's word. For as through the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, even so through the obedience of the one, the many will be made righteous. The law came in so that the transgression would increase, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, even so grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin live in it? Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died is freed from sin. May God. Okay, now let's just be and, and, and you have to be honest with this. Romans 6 and 7 and parts of 5. I mean, there's lots. I mean, so, there's so many sections in Romans that is just absolutely difficult. In fact, I went, since we were, been work, when we were working through Romans verse by verse, it was funny that every time I'd pick up a commentary, this is the most difficult section in the entire book. And then, then the next, in another commentary, you would be in a different, se- a different section. This is the most difficult section. And what you realize is there's so many different interpretations. Everyone thinks they're right. Everyone thinks they have it figured out, which is a, which is a good, uh, just as a warning sign to me that, hey, it's more difficult than we let, than, than we tend to lead on that it is. I, I, now, I don't know if he's going to do that. I, I, he may admit how difficult this is, or he may feel it's very simple. And of course, it's simple because his interpretation is right. I don't know which direction he's going to go, but I tried to, I tried to explain it to my church over and over and over. It's just every section is just everyone. And, and, and the church is so divided on how to interpret so much of it. So many different streams of theology based on different sections of Romans. It is crazy. Everything from Calvinist to Arminian to Pelagian, semi-Pelagian. I mean, you just name it uh, from uh, dispensational to amillennial. I mean, you, you, I mean, it is just, it's all over the, and all in many cases quoting from the book of Romans. So I don't know. uh, I mean, that, that section of scripture he just read, there's so much there, but let's see what he's going to do with it. Bless the reading of his infallible word. Are we really going back to Romans? Didn't you preach 79 sermons on this book already? Yes and yes. But there is no borrowed material here in this sermon. This is no recycled job, I promise you. I've called this sermon Answering the Charge of Antinomianism Again. Answering the Charge of Antinomianism Again. Okay, now that makes more sense. Answering the Charge of Antinomianism. Let me go back and see how they actually posted the sermon. They they posted it as answering antinomianism again. 
This is answering the charge of antinomianism. All right, that changes my whole perspective, okay? That changed because I thought this was like, hey, antinomians are out there saying this and we're going to answer them. No, no, no. It sounds like he's been that once again, he's talking about being accused of being an antinomian. I'm going to answer the charge of an antinomian again. Because, listen, I, man, I understand this, because when I started trying to teach the proper distinction between law and gospel, when I started trying to teach it, I mean, I was accused of antinomianism. And I'm like, how in the world, if anyone's ever listened to me for three seconds, how would they ever like, you're an antinomian? What in the absolute name of bubblegum are you talking? Me, an antinomian? (laughs) That is... That is ridiculous, right? Like that, that is the most absurd thing I've ever heard in my life. So it sounds like the same thing has happened to him. And he's like, oh, we're back in Romans again. And we're answering the charge of antinomian. Now that makes more sense. What I am concerned about is the, all the people running around accusing people of being antinomian. I, that's what I've started to see, right? I mean, we just reviewed a podcast where like, they're like, antinomianism is a threat to the church. Where is the antinomians? What I see is people grabbing onto the term and accusing anyone who doesn't preach their view of salvation as being an antinomian because that's the only theological term they could come up with to accuse you of something. But as I think it was Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones who is famous for saying, you have never preached the gospel correctly until you've been accused of antinomianism. Until you are accused of antinomianism, you haven't preached the gospel. Well, I guess I have never preached the gospel till 2022, because I think it was 2022 was the first time that I've ever been accused of antinomianism. So that means my entire life, I have never preached the gospel correctly. Now, I've been accused in the past of not preaching the gospel, even after someone was in the church, we did like, I don't know, six months study on the doctrine of justification and they're you you don't preach the gospel i'm like does that word mean any does the word gospel actually mean anything you're an antinomian what 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 like so sometimes you're just baffled so so i i i think i'm gonna be in a now now i feel like hey maybe him and i are in agreement here right if he's been accused of antinomianism i've been accused of antinomianism Maybe we've been preaching similar messages. I don't know. Now, according to the emailer, this person's going to solve the problem or the distinction between law and gospel by presenting regeneration. All right. Let's hear it. Here we go. In studying for the series that we've been doing on the Westminster Confession of Faith on Sunday nights for quite some time now, I've read a couple of books on the history of the Westminster Assembly itself and its theologians and some of their arguments and disputes that they went through together as they hammered out our great confession and our catechisms. These theologians, these 121 of the most learned men in the history of the church who gathered there, who met for more than five years beginning in 1643, they come more than... I do have to stop. It's always like the, the most learned men... In the history of the church, they met at, uh, they met for the Council of Nicaea. The most learned men in the history of the church met 
for the Council of Ephesus. The most learned men in the church translated the King James. The most learned learned men in the history of the church wrote the London Baptist Confession of Faith. The most learned men in the history of the church met for the Westminster Confession. Why is it that everyone thinks the most learned men was gathered and wrote the document that agrees with their theology. This comes from a Presbyterian church, so obviously they believe the most learned men in church history wrote the Westminster Confession, right? Maybe I believe the most learned men wrote the London Baptist Confession. Like, I I don't know. Like, how do you measure that they were the most learned men? Like, uh, Like, based off degrees, I mean, so the people in the 300s at the Council of Nicaea or, or 325 and any of the preceding uh, uh, ecumenical councils, the, the next, what, six, seven, ec- or next six ecumenical councils, were, were, did, because they didn't have certain degrees from certain well-known universities. Like, how do you measure who is the most well-learned? Is, mel- is most well-learned the number of degrees the people possess or is the most well-learned is some kind of practical working knowledge of the subject. I don't know. I don't know. I just, I just find that funny when people say that. A hundred years after the beginning of the Protestant Reformation in 1517. So these are really third generation reformers. A lot had happened and much hard work had been done studying the word of God and studying the gospel of Christ during that more than a hundred years that had come and gone since Luther. And yet to my surprise in studying the history of the Westminster Assembly, an objection to the gospel of free grace in Christ, of justification by grace alone, through faith alone, on account of Christ alone, was raised even by a handful of theologians at the Westminster Assembly. Very surprised to read this, that some of them actually said, well, look, if, if we're justified by the righteousness of Jesus Christ, if that's actually imputed to our account, then functionally we would have to become antinomians. We would have to be antinomians. And I was shocked, shocked to read that because that very problem is addressed right in the passage we just read. Okay, now this seems to happen when you emphasize, hey, we are saved by an imputed righteousness, not an infused righteousness. It seems it only takes about 15 seconds for someone to lose their mind. They're like, you've got to be an antinomian. You've got to be, you've got to be an antinomian. You have to be antinomian because you are believe you're saying that I am saved by an imputed righteousness. And it's not, and 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 you and as if you've listened to me, you know what I say. And I'm I'm gonna go back because I've been making this illustration in our study of, of a proper distinction between law and gospel. You I want you, and I know this is repetitive for some of you. Some of you, this may be new to, but I want you to listen to me. If I go to school and I, I just, I am horrible at math. I cannot pass pass a math test for the life of me. No matter how hard I try, I fail, I fail, I fail. Zero after zero after zero. Finally, the student, the teacher is like, you're the worst math student in history. You, you're going to be sent back to kindergarten. You're never probably, you're never going to make it back to high school. You're, it's, it's impossible. You can't handle this. You can't do this. You probably should just drop out of school and see if you can get a job sweeping the streets because that's all you can ever be able to do. You are a failure. And I'm like, you're right. I'm a failure. I can't do it. I can't do it. But someone steps up and says, wait, 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 wait. My math score is now there. My math achievements is his math achievement. I'm going to accredit it this to, to his account. And so the teacher looks and like, okay, this has been accredited to your account. You're now on the honor roll. 
You're now an A student. You're now uh, the best math student we have ever had in the history of this school. You are a math genius. Now, the minute that's imputed to my account, can the teacher test me to determine if I've if that's been accredited to my account? Well, that would make no sense. It was accredited to my account. It being accredited to my account doesn't make me no math, doesn't make me a good math student. I'm still, I don't know anything about math. I'm still a failure. So if the, if the teacher tests me, to see if I've really, this has really been accredited to my account. Well, that's a useless test. I'm going to fail every single time because it was imputed. I wasn't infused with math ability. I wasn't infused with math knowledge. It was imputed. So guess what? If the teacher wants to test to see if I'm truly an A student, they couldn't test me. They would have to test the one at whom, whose math skills were imputed to my account. Now, if we take that over into the theological realm, the, here's the law. I can't, I can't pass the, the test of the law. I fall short, I fall short, I fall short, I fall short. The, the law says you're condemned. Instead of going back to kindergarten, you go to hell and you, you are condemned. You are a sinner. And I'm like, well, there's nothing I can do. I can try, 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 try. I'm never going to accomplish it. Jesus, in a sense, steps in. I kept the law for him. I kept it perfectly. My righteousness, my obedience is imputed to his account. Now, you can't come to me and say, I'm going to test your life. I'm going to ch- I'm going to see if you've truly been saved. Well, no, 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 no. If you test me, I'm still going to fail because I'm the same sinner with the same sinful nature. If you're going to test me, no, no, no. You've got to test Christ. And every time you test Christ, it's going to show up perfect, 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 perfect. But the minute you say that we're saved by an imputed righteousness, and therefore my salvation is not dependent on what I do, and what I do can't be the, 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 the determining factor whether I have it or don't have it. No, 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 because that would require an infused righteousness. The minute you say that, you just wait. You just wait. You just give it a minute. Also, your phone's going to ring. 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 Hello? Uh, yes. Uh, uh, are you an antinomian? Uh, no, I just taught salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, because of Christ alone. That we're saved by an imputed righteousness. How is that antinomianism? Well, well we, we've got to do something. You've got to prove it. How can I prove an imputed righteousness? You want to prove me? You want to test my salvation? By all means, test it. Go see Jesus. The score is always 100, I always have an A, and I'm always perfectly obedient. And immediately you're going to be charged of antinomianism. And it sounds like this has been going on, well, since the Westminster Convention. Obviously, it's been going on longer than that, but you get the idea. Throughout church history, beginning specifically with the Apostle Paul himself, a very simple objection has been thrown at the one true gospel again and again throughout church history, and very Very sadly, the church has not typically responded well or biblically to it. And the objection is so common that it even has its own technical name, antinomianism. Now let me tell you about that word, antinomianism. The word antinomianism is from two Greek words, anti, which means against, and we use that in English all the time, anti this, anti that, and namas. Namas is the Greek word for law. So antinomianism is to be against the law. An antinomian is a person who believes that the Christian is entirely free 
from any obligation to obey God's law at all since Christ has kept it for him and has borne its penalty at the cross. And therefore, the gospel of Jesus Christ gives us a free license to sin all we want and still get into heaven when we die. Now, of course, the biblical gospel is indeed perfectly free, and it is by faith alone, and it is not by works at all that we do, even as Christians, by which we get into heaven. And the biblical gospel does not and never has led to antinomianism. It is not a license to sin. However, and this is the one, one of the most important points of this morning's message, and it's something I want all of you to carry with you for the rest of your life. When the one true biblical gospel is preached correctly, it has always and will always lead people to make this charge against it, that it will lead to a licentious life and to immoral living. Why do people think this? Okay, that, that, that's such a good point. Whenever you preach the gospel right, you will be accused of basically antinomianism. You will be accused of promoting that people can live in sin and live any way they want, all right? And that it's perfectly okay. You, that's what you're going to be accused of. So the fact, if I've, if since in 2022, I was accused of this, then that tells me I preached the gospel correctly. I know, I, now I know, I know it doesn't necessarily 100% prove that, but it's just interesting that when you really start emphasizing a salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, because of Christ alone, and you really start trying to play that out as practically as you can, then immediately the charge comes, antinomian. And it's like, uh, I think we need to think this through, right? I think we have to think this through. Now, we always have to be careful now. Now, listen, someone accuses you of antinomianism. You don't ever want to react to that charge. By then running and somehow compromising imputed righteousness, salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, because of Christ alone. You don't want to compromise that simply in order to, to calm down someone who's accused you of antinomianism. They can accuse you of it, but you don't run and compromise the free grace of Christ, the gospel, to satisfy the critic. They may be a critic. They may slander you, gossip about you, and talk about you. Just that's not, that's not your problem. The gospel is what has to be preserved. The gospel has to be preserved. Because the biblical gospel of justification by belief alone in Christ alone and not by any works that we do before or after our conversion sounds like it's saying that Christians are under no obligation of any kind to obey God. That we're under no obligation at all to even listen to what his law says. So many people asked Paul this question about the law and our obligation to obey it that he brings it up repeatedly in his letters. It's amazing to me how much the church has struggled to answer this question when Paul brings it up and answers it over and over and over again. So I'd like to point out something to you. You know why the church struggles with this? You know why the church still struggles with it now? Why the Reformed churches still struggle with it now? Because nobody reads their Bible anymore. Okay. Look, oh boy. Now, when I was a younger pastor, I would have said something similar. That was always 
That was always my um, go-to answer, right? How come this person disagrees? They don't read their Bible. How come they disagree? They don't read their Bible. How come they disagree? They don't read their Bible. That's always the the, the go-to thing. I, look, I, I think that's ridiculous. Here's the thing. There are people who have read their Bible, studied their Bible, memorized their Bible. They, they meditate on it. They, and they have come up with completely opposite interpretations than I have, right? Look, he's a Presbyterian. He puts, he sprinkles water on a baby and then says, hey, everyone, here's a new member of our church. Here's the, the, the sign of the covenant is on this child. And I'm like, whoa, 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 whoa. I don't think I, I don't think his problem is he hasn't read the Bible. I believe he's read the Bible. I believe he's studied the Bible. But I've read the Bible and I've studied the Bible. And I've been reading and reading and studying it and teaching it for basically most of my life, uh, since I was a teenager on. I've been involved in somehow teaching, preaching, sharing basically since very early after my salvation. And guess what? I think it's absolutely absurd and insane that you would any in any way, shape, or form even try to pretend that the Bible would lead you to building an entire doctrine on infant baptism. I mean, the best you could come up with is, well, there is these pa- passages where the whole house was baptized, but if we take that to its logical conclusion, then, it, then if one person gets saved in the house, just everyone in the house is automatically baptized, right? The wife gets saved, boom, that's it. The husband, uh, the, if the grandparents are there, and everyone in the house, boom, they all get baptized. Well, no, nobody, no. Yeah, but they say, well, no, 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 no. Just the infants in the house get baptized. No, no, no. If you're going to say the whole household gets baptized, well, then... How do, how do we, how do you understand? Like, like it just leads to all kinds of problems. In fact, you don't have any examples of infants being baptized. There's just so many problems, but I'm not going to accuse him that he's come to that conclusion because he hasn't read his Bible. Here is the absolute shocking and horrifying truth of Christianity. No one agrees on how to interpret the Bible. But a difference in interpretation is not proof of lack of reading or studying. It is simply proof that nobody agrees on how to interpret it. So his thing is, oh, you know why there's so many problems between this whole idea of, of, of the, the gospel being accused of being antinomian and, and this whole thing about law and grace and how we resolve all this? You know the problem? No one reads their Bible anymore. Come on. Now, I do agree that there are many people who will throw the charge of antinomian at you, and they've never done even half, they've not even done a basic diligence study, but they'll still make the accusation, still gossip and slander, but that's okay, that's okay. I just think that we've got to be careful. When I was a younger pastor, I would go to full, I would go full blown with this. You know why they don't disagree? They don't study their Bibles. And of course, it's always they don't study, but we do. The reason they don't know what we know is because we've studied more than them. Now, you just see how arrogant that becomes? We study the Bible more than anyone who disagrees with us. We're more knowledgeable than anyone who... You can't go there. You can't go there, man. You can't say the the, the problem with all of this is because people don't study their Bibles. These issues about law, grace, gospel, imputed, infused, antinomian, versus a a true understanding of the gospel, these issues have been kicked around and thrown around for a good portion of church history. 
by people who have read and studied their Bibles. There are people who have read and studied their Bibles who are semi-Pelagian. There are people who have read and studied their Bible who are Calvinists. There are people who have read and studied their Bible who are Arminian. There are people who have read and studied their Bible who are amillennial. There are people who have read and studied their Bible who are dispensational. I mean, come on, let's just be, let's at least be fair, all right? Let's be fair. So I'm not a fan of that that statement in any way, shape, or form. Just It's just not fair. It's just not fair. But I'm going to back this up. Let him say it again. Here we go. Struggles with this? You know why the church still struggles with it now? Why the Reformed churches still struggle with it now? Because nobody reads their Bible anymore. We've got too many things to watch on Netflix. See the arrogance? Nobody, nobody, you know why we still have problems with this? They're watching Netflix. And and guess what he's, whether he wants to, whether he wants to say this, he, this is what he's saying, whether it's intentional or unintentional, this is what he's saying. You know why I know how to understand this? I read my Bible and I don't spend too much time on Netflix. Now, I'm not saying he intended, intends to say that, but come on now, come on, come on. That's just not fair. That, that's just, that's just not fair. There's too many documentaries. There's too many cool things. There's too many TV shows. You can just watch one after the other, after the other, after the other. Who's got time to read Romans all the time or read Galatians or read Isaiah or read Ezekiel? Who wants to read Obadiah when you could watch TV? Paul says in Romans 3.8, here's the first time he brings it up. And why not say, as we are slanderously reported and as some claim that we say, let us do evil that good may come. And Paul is very angry. He says, their condemnation is just. So again, that's just, that's just arrogance. That's just arrogance. Okay, there, there's nothing redeeming in that. There's nothing godly. It's just arrogance. And and I and I don't say it. Uh, I don't say it in a condemning way. Please hear me out, man. I have said the same kind of things in sermons. Oh man, I, I said it in a much meaner way, a much harsher way. I said it with sarcasm. I mocked. I can. I've been there. Because it's just, because just, I think, I I mean, I don't know how long he's been a Christian, but I think the longer you're a Christian, the more you begin to realize nobody agrees on anything. I mean, this is insane. Nobody agrees on anything. I I can't remember when we were working on the book of Revelation. I don't remember what, uh, I don't remember what section we were in, but we had, I think, what was it? 25 commentaries. I think it was 25 commentaries that presented 51 interpretations to to the verse that we were looking at. 25 commentaries with over 50 interpretations. You get Romans, you can have 10 commentaries. You may end up with you may end up with 100 interpretations. All the people have studied their Bible, read their Bible. It no, there's something there's there's deeper issues. One, listen, there is the issue of what hermeneutical method are you using? Two, and this just has to be understood. So many times we interpret the passage not based off hermeneutical steps. It's because we've imposed a system of theology that we were taught upon the text. In many cases, people's theology is not derived from the text. The theology is taught 
and then we place it on the text, and then we read all the text in light of that theology. This is a this is a never-ending problem in the church, right? If you go to a Baptist church, you're taught a Baptist type of theology. That's imposed upon the text. And then when you read the text, you see the theology that you were taught. And, and in your mind, you'll convince yourself it comes from that text, but you're not reading the text and trying to see what the text actually says. You're imposing your theology upon it. So therefore, we always bring these presuppositions upon the text. And if you know anything about how I approach it in my church, is whenever we come to a passage of I'm like, okay, guys, okay, guys, here's what we need to do. Everyone's got fluffy. Now, fluffy is imaginary. It's not a real animal, but I describe our theological perspective, our theological belief as fluffy, right? It's our dog. We love fluffy, right? We hold fluffy, right? And fluffy becomes our, our, our theological presupposition that we impose on the text. So this is what I always tell everyone to do. You know what we have to do tonight? We have to take fluffy out behind the church and we got to put her down. Now, I don't actually mean the killing of an animal. This is simply an illustration. It is blunt and it is a little shocking, but it gets the point across. All of our theological assumptions and presuppositions have to be put down so that, guess what? We don't see fluffy. We can see the text. We'll look at the text and we won't, we won't consider anything that we've ever learned about the text in the past. And we're not even going to look at it based off the light of our theological uh, confession of faith or anything. We're just going to look at the text. We look at the text and go, okay, what does it seem to say? Now we may come to the conclusion that Fluffy was right. And then we can go revive Fluffy and carry Fluffy around again. Or we may realize Fluffy was wrong and we've got to get a new Fluffy because our theology was wrong. Now, that makes people nervous because whenever I start looking at a text, people's like, oh, no, where is he going? Where is he going? They don't know. Where are we going to end up? Because here's what I, I don't care about the theological team. I don't care if it's reform, non-reform. I don't care about who I agree with. I'm not. I, look, I don't care if I'm going to go against the gang and get, end up with a drive-by shooting. No, no, no. I don't care about the gang. I don't care about the colors. You know what I care about is what the text says. And so we all have to realize that it's very, 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 very easy to do that. So in many cases, it has nothing to do with the fact that people aren't reading. It's the fact that they're reading the text in light of their theological tradition. And the tradition becomes the hermeneutical way in which they look at it. So we have, why is there so much disagreement? Different hermeneutical methods. And number two, we've placed our theology above or on the text. Whether you want to make one, which one of those, I don't know what, what which, which one I said was first, but those are two major problems. I don't think it's always a lack of reading, but it's easy just to throw out that accusation. Or, 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 so, yeah. I mean, there's so much more I could say there, but but I hope you understand that. All right, so let's let's see what he's going going to do here. Paul is so mean. If that guy was interviewed by 99% of churches in this country, they would say, "Get him out of here. We want nothing to do with this guy." Romans 3:28. For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not also the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also. Since indeed the God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith is one. Do we then nullify the law through faith? You know why Paul brings that question up there? Because every time he preached the gospel, someone made that objection. Are, are you saying that the law has no role in our lives anymore? Are you saying that the law is completely nullified now because it can't help us be saved or get to heaven? And Paul's answer is... May it never be. On the contrary, we uphold the law or we establish the law. And then our When you say the law helps us get to heaven, I don't know what he means by that. The law 
The law helps us get to heaven only in so much as it shows us our condition and it drives us. It's supposed to take us to the cross. It drives us to the cross. So, um, so we, we, we got to be careful how, how we mean that. Okay. Because we got to make sure we keep it in its proper function. Passage for this morning answers the very same charge. I've told you all before that if your gospel presentations, when you personally witness to people and tell them about the Christian faith and talk to them about Jesus Christ and how a person can be made right with God and end up in heaven, if your witnessing does not elicit the charge of antinomianism, you are not preaching the gospel correctly. If you don't get this charge, you are not preaching it right. Now, why do I say this? Because Paul got this objection from his hearers and from his enemies all the time, which is why he brings the objection up and then answers it in his letters. If we don't get the same objection from our hearers and from our enemies, we are not preaching the gospel correctly. Now, Christians have dealt with this charge from the very beginning. From the very beginning, Christians have had to hear the objection. You're saying that we can live like the devil and still go to heaven. You're saying it doesn't matter how we live. All we've got to do is tip our hat to Jesus, walk an aisle, check a little box, and all's good, I'm going to heaven. People have said to the heralds of the true gospel over and over again, you are nullifying the law altogether and giving people permission to live like dogs. You are preaching licentiousness. You are preaching a dangerous message that will lead to loose living. You're saying that a man can live like the devil and still get into heaven. As one Roman Catholic fellow told me many years ago when I shared the gospel with him, he said, you just make it sound way too easy. And that warmed my heart. <laughs> How do we answer these objections? First okay, we'll stop right there tonight at nine minutes and 50. We've gone almost an hour and we've covered, a <laughs> we've covered an entire nine minutes and 56 seconds. All right, I'm going to write this down. Nine minutes. 56 seconds. I'm just going to put anti. There we go. We'll back it up just a couple of seconds. That's a good place to start. There we go. The church ha it has been a disagreement over all of these things. Just make sure you don't say it's because people haven't read. The problem is what what's the uh, hermeneutical method? And the major issue is we have allowed our theology to become the, the, the lens and we, it, we insert it on the text and then we see our theology in the text. And then, well, that becomes a major problem. All right. So many other things we talked about tonight, but that gets us started. I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing where this is going and uh, what his supposed solution is. We will see. We will see. We've got some serious questions to raise and uh, well, we'll work on this tomorrow. So, until tomorrow, feel free to contact me, newsif at yahoo.com, newsif at yahoo.com. We'll start tomorrow, like we do every day, with a Today's Focus podcast episode, right? Today's Focus, where I go about 15, 20 minutes, giving you one thing to focus on. We'll be back in Matthew chapter 1. We're going through the quote-unquote nativity narrative, and uh, we're going very slowly, but I think it's been fun and hopefully interesting. And uh, we'll, we'll be doing that again tomorrow. And then after that, we may go back and work on our series on uh, the practicing the presence of God and all of the craziness that we're talking about there. We'll, we'll finish this review and then we'll check the email in, inbox and then we'll just see where we're going to end up. But thank you so much for listening tonight. 
Um, again, you can always contact me, newsif at yahoo.com. And please, 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 please consider listening to our series on understanding law and gospel. Easiest way to find it is the Church One app, Church O-N-E. Download the app, search for Theology Central. Look for our series, Understanding Law and Gospel, 43 plus hours of teaching. And this is very important, very important. I hope that you will find it to be uh, beneficial. But if you do download the Church One app, uh, make sure you let us know. That's very important. Secondly, make sure all of the notifications are turned on and you'll uh, you'll know when we go live because we're live on the air. (laughs) Sometimes it feels like that's all I do is live here. Put it this way. I live on the air when the internet is working correctly, when the internet's not working correctly. But we're really going to try to go out strong. Between now and the end of the year, we're going to really try to go out strong with a lot of fun live broadcasts. So download the Church One app and let us know. Newsif at yahoo.com. And if you're, uh, I got an email just the other day from a new listener, and we really appreciate getting those new listens. We really, really appreciate it. Because uh, lets me know. And, And I love to know how you found us and how you're listening. Because some people listen, I mean, we're on every platform on earth, so I never know how people are, people are listening and how they found us. So, But if you are using Church One, great. If you also want to listen to us live, you can download the Spreaker app. Um, that's S-P-R-E-A-K-E-R, Spreaker, not Speaker, but Spreaker. And uh, again, search for Theology Central, and you can listen to us live that way as well. All right, everyone have a great night. It's fast approaching 11 p.m. Central Time here in West Texas. And uh, well, I hope you have a good night, and hopefully... You'll ask yourself, have I ever preached the gospel correctly? How do I know? I've been accused of being an antinomian, all right? That's a good place to end, all right? Everyone have a great night. God bless.